my jaw literally dropped because I was on a small little hillside in direct line of sight with what was for 10 years my bedroom window, less than 200 feet away from where he is buried. I looked out over the site every day for nine years. The Defendant's Commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes. Slip them, slip them all the way open. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people. Then I would have felt better. And when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. This week, guys, we have an incredible interview for you. We have Sean McCracken, host of the YouTube series Mysterious WV. This guy's amazing. This interview is amazing. Probably one of my favorite interviews so far we've done on the podcast. So I want you all to sit back, strap in, turn up that volume dial, because this is a good one, guys. All right, guys, tonight on Serial Spirits, we have a very special guest. He is the host of the series Mysterious WV. Mr. Sean McCracken is with us tonight. Sean, how are you? I am doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for being a part of this series. So before we get into the absolutely tragic case that we are going to document tonight, I want to talk first about mysterious wv guys if you have never watched the series please go over to youtube and subscribe because it is a phenomenal series sean give everyone listening a little detail um, how you got started in mysterious wv and what the watchers can expect from that well growing up i always loved a mystery and i am a child that uh grew up with shows like in search of and uns, uns, unsolved mysteries, and I was always a, always a viewer, and I always, in some way, I always wanted to participate. And uh, for all of my all of my life, this is a type of activity that I have wanted to become involved in. But up until recently, it just wasn't wasn't really feasible. You know, it's quite an quite an undertaking to be portraying all of these cases. And um, oh, I guess about three or four three or four years ago, perusing uh, YouTube, I found out that there were lots of individuals out there who were doing pretty much the same thing. They were profiling 
cold cases, mysterious cases, missing persons, John and Jane Doe's unsolved murders. And I started to watch them almost as as religiously as I had watched unsolved mysteries. And uh, they drew me in uh, just just as powerfully. And uh, I started to think, I guess, after about a year of watching them, you know, this is fantastic, but the cases are kind of all over the place. You know, I don't remember seeing more than maybe one or two that were focused in West Virginia. And I thought these cases are being covered very well, but I got the impression that they were being done by people. I think I used the analogy once. There was probably a person in in Maine who was profiling a case that occurred in Calif- California. I thought, well, they did a fantastic job with it, but if they had stuck with something a little closer to home, they probably would have been able to, oh, maybe to do a little better job of it. And I thought, well, I'm here. There are plenty of cases all all around me. Um, why not create a channel that does the same thing, but stays in just one primary area? And that way it can not only be covered drawing from online sources, online information, but you have everything local available to you as well. You have all of the locations involved. I have the state archives, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from my my house. I have all of the law and f- law enforcement agencies who are involved are just a, a phone call or an email away. And I thought with all of that information, I can probably present these cases more along the lines of a local news story and can gather independent information, independent audio, independent to video and photos actually going to the locations where the crimes occurred. And I thought that would be doing them far more justice, even if I'm only sticking to one geographical geographical area. And so that's how it all got started. It got started with me, with me thinking, you know, we could do this. We could probably do this better. Let, let's, let's do this. That's perfect. You're amongst friends here, number one, when you said in search of and unsolved mysteries, because Brendan and I, uh, that's kind of why we do this podcast. We grew up on these shows. And like you said, you dive into this world of all of these cases, these unsolved cases, whether it's murders, disappearances, and they're so sad. And you see so many of them just disappear. And I, lo- I think it's so smart that you chose to stay within the confines of our home state because, number one, there are so many unsolved murders and missing persons cases in the state of West Virginia. Maybe I'm just biased because I've looked at the numbers. I've done the research. But then you talk about actually going to these locations. Brendan and I did this when we covered Uh, the murder of Samantha Burns. We went Mm -hmm. to some of those locations where she was last seen alive. And I really think it brings it on a personal level, not just to you, but to the people who are watching. And you do have the availability of local authorities if and when they are willing to talk with you. You have the archives. You have that um, hometown mentality almost of 
hey, we can talk to this guy. He's not an outsider. I think that's very smart, and I love that you do that. The most important thing I've always said is boots on the ground. You know, it, 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 right. it, I think like you you hit the nail on the head. We said it means more because you're there. You can able to go to these places. You can talk face to face with these people instead of over the phone. And I think some more people are willing to talk when they actually can see a person and see the mission that you're trying to accomplish as opposed to having, you know, you're like you said, covering a case that's in California, which is great. You can do all the work you can you can try to do for it when you're in Maine. But you got 3000 miles in between the thing. Why not do something that's local, close to home that you can help, you know, solve a mystery? You hit so, the nail on the head. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. That is it to a T. And you use a Robert Stack reference right there. Yeah. Help solve a mystery. I like that. Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. And that's the whole idea is to get people involved and to try to bring attention to these cases, which many of them, uh, the case that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit, uh, I talked about others finding information about the cases on online. No one else could have covered this case because there is nothing online about it. Well, well, there is now. There wasn't. Right. So let's get into this case because, like I said before, I watched your episode of Mysterious WV about this case and read what exists online now. And literally 10 minutes into this, I'm, I'm scratching my head already saying, how do things like this happen, number one? And why, as almost a lifelong resident of Huntington, have I never heard anything of this case? So the case that we're going to talk about tonight is from 1979. We're going to talk about the death of 18-year-old Jay Farley and the disappearance of Maisie May Sigmund Palmer. Sean, this is a case that you have, you just dove headfirst into this. So number one, tell us how you found out about this case since there was nothing online and where you began your investigating. Certainly. I first heard about this case. I was contacted through, through Facebook. I believe it was from a former classmate of Jay's. I think this was in January of 2018. And uh, they sent me basic information on the case, the date, what was known about it, which at that time was not much. And I started some initial investigation. This is again in January of 2018. It unfortunately got cut short because not long there afterwards, I had to go through a divorce. And so the case ended up on the shelf for all oh, about eight months. Then when I got the channel up and going again about a year ago, uh, it was one of the ones that I had already done some, some delving into, uh, but it came back up. I was contacted again by another classmate of Jay's from Dunbar High School, and it was still very much alive in their minds. But I had, as you say, I had never heard of it. I checked online. I searched and searched and searched and could not find anything. So I took the dates that they gave me. And unfortunately, this is a time period for the Charleston uh, newspapers, which is dark, as we say. Um, they are not digitized. They are not even indexed until 1985. So it's a lot of so, microfilm? All microfilm. Wow. All, all microfilm. 
that's exactly that's exactly it. So I had the date that they were known to have disappeared. And unfortunately, I checked that date for a couple of months and there was nothing. I didn't see anything. Finally, somebody put me in contact with members of his family. And through them, I found they were still very much interested uh, in having the case solved and profiled. And they were able to provide me. They had kept the information from day one, which included all the newspaper articles, journals, letters, a police report, uh, which had all of the dates and all of the information that I could ever want to get to get started. So they sent me what they had, which consisted of initially just a lot of a, lo a lot of newspaper articles so that I could get started, so that I had the exact dates when stuff was talked about. And this is when I found out that it did not even make the papers. Uh, Jay's disappearance was not even mentioned until September of 79. Uh, Maisie May's disappearance, I don't think, was mentioned until the following January. But wow. fortunately, they had kept the articles, so they had them right there. The date, end of the article. Not a very good copy of them, but I had the date, so I could then go get my own copies made, and I had a starting point. So that's what I did. I had the dates, went back to the uh, microfish machine, and just started plunking in quarters, <laughs> making a <laughs> lot of copies. It had actually been covered... Um, very loosely in 1979. Then there had been a follow-up article to it, which was a lot more detailed in 1982. And then uh, when Jay's body was found in 1984, at that point, there was then quite a few articles because at that point, you know, you have an unsolved murder. So there for a couple of months, it was in the news as they say, but that's when it stopped after I think about August of 1984, coverage in the press stopped. But it was enough to be getting on with. Um, and then I conducted an interview with his uh, stepmother and she provided me with a firsthand account of everything and subsequently provided me with a copy of an actual report, which shed all of the light you could ever want on this case and then some. And um, I, a couple of things I found out were unfortunate because there were, I hate to say missed opportunities along the way, but there were. So the actual story itself as it unfolded uh, started on July 14th, 1979. Um, Jay had just graduated from Dunbar High School a couple of months earlier. And uh, Maisie May at this time was 25. Uh, she was a graduate from Sissonville, and she was uh, back in Charleston again after having lived many, many places. I think I was looking through the report. She lived alternately in Oklahoma City, New Jersey, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, several places. Uh, and she was 25. Uh, she and Jay met sometime in late June of 1979 at the old recreation center on the Canal Boulevard, or just off the Canal Boulevard, uh, towards Patrick Street Plaza. 
we don't know a lot about how their relationship got started or just how far it had gone. Again, Jay was only 18. He had just graduated high school. Maisie Mae was 25, had been married and divorced. And mm, there was an indication that she came across as a lot younger than she actually was. So exactly how they met and how they got together, I don't know. But by July 14th, 1979, they were dating. And that night, apparently, they had set a date. July 14th was a Saturday. And they had set a date to go out on the town like any like any any other couple on a Saturday night. And um, see, going into the details of it, we don't know much about what Maisie May did that day. Uh, But from the report and from Jay's family, I know he spent the day primarily with his family. And that evening, oh, at about nine o'clock, told his family that he was going out. I don't know if he said exactly where he was going, uh, but he said that he was going out on a date and that he would be back, quote, in a while, end quote. Uh, At the time, he was staying with his his grandmother in Dunbar. Uh, Before he went out, uh, she asked him if he needed any money. He said he didn't, and he did not have a driver's license, so he hitched a ride to Charleston with a friend. And he met up with Maisie May at the old, the old um, Roaring Twenties nightclub on Hale Street in the 200 block of Hale Street between, I think it is Lee and Courier Street. And they met up together there at about 10 p.m., about 10 p.m., July 14th, 1979. Uh, they were observed going into the club by at least two people. Now, uh, that night, uh, Jay was dressed in a light blue, pink and white plaid shirt that was a polyester blend, and that actually is important for later on. Blue jeans, brown suede shoes, and uh, he did not have on any jewelry of any kind. Again, there was no indication that he had any plans to do anything other than to go out for a, a uh, just a normal date that night. That night, um, Maisie May was dressed uh, in an orange blouse, blue denim Lee brand jeans, sandals, a small blue pocketbook with silver trim and a shoulder strap. And um, the police report indicates that Maisie May had short brown hair and double pierced ears, hazel colored eyes and was five feet six inches tall weighed about 115 pounds again this is in july of 1979 they were inside the club the roaring 20s for approximately one hour Uh, they then came outside and were observed again outside the club by a friend of jay's and were observed walking across hale street through what was then an open parking lot. They're traveling east. Uh, they crossed, I believe it was Dickinson Street, yes, into the parking lot behind the old Holly Hotel, which was torn down in 1993. And here's where the story gets extremely interesting. All of the accounts that I found in the paper from 1979 
82 and 84, the story ends there. They were last seen behind the Holly Hotel. That was it. So was there any indication of how Maisie got to the bar that night? Did she drive? Was she also hitchhiking? Did they know who he hitchhiked there with? Because I would think that would be a very important part of the case. Forgive me for that. Yes, she was transported to the car by her uncle, Ira Hugert, with whom she was living at the time. They lived in Charleston. So I would assume he would just drop her off there and leave. And then so they would have been on their own accord from that point. Correct. Okay. Neither of them owned a car. Jay didn't even have a driver's license, although Maisie May did. Now, as I said, all of the accounts up to 1984 end in the parking lot behind the Holly Hotel. And this is when I got a hold of the police report. I read through it and literally thumped the top of my head and said, oh, no. They've been looking in the wrong place. It was found out. I don't know exactly when, uh, but law enforcement subsequently ascertained that they were picked up in the parking lot behind the Holly Hotel by by an individual named Bill Cottrell. His relationship with either of them is not described, but apparently they knew him somehow. He then drove them to a nightclub called the King's Inn, which is directly across the street from the Boulevard Recreation Center, where we believe they first met. Uh, 1608 2nd Avenue in Charleston. Uh, The building is no longer there. So they were transported at least two miles west to a totally different location, and this was never made public, and I do not know why. Um, Again, all I know is that since 1979, everybody had been looking in the area behind the Holly Hotel, trying to trace it from there, when in fact they were on the other side of Charleston, practically at Patrick Street. So So was Bill Cottrell never... I guess, questioned by anyone or was it just kind of dropped and he came forward later and said, oh, hey, no, I gave them a ride two miles in another direction. They weren't actually there when they disappeared. I saw them after that. Reading through the report, I get the impression that that information was not learned until after Jay's body was found and it got back into the news And it seems to me that then some people started coming forward again who might not have even heard about it in 1979. And they were then able to to add this bit of information. So let me ask this, like, so this case went basically cold in 1984. He was discovered in 1985. And this police, they didn't do any subsequent like searching or any more investigating until 1985. Not quite, no. Uh, He went missing, they both went missing in 1979, and then his body was found in May of 1984. Uh, There had been investigation in the interim, extensive investigation. Um, This is, uh, I'm always very careful about when people criticize law enforcement, because there's always lots of information that that is not made public. And I know that this is a fact. They have to hold back the majority of the information. 
primarily because most of it would be speculative in nature and also because to maintain the integrity of the investigation. But from what I understand, they did not know that they had gone from the area behind the Holly Hotel to the King's Inn until 1984, probably again because of the discovery of his body and it did actually make the news at that time in an extensive way. What they ascertained at that point was this. Uh, Mr. Cottrell drove them from the area behind the Holly Hotel to the King's Inn on Charleston's west side, practically to Patrick Street. Um, as they were pulling into the parking parking lot at the King's Inn, Maisie May said something curious, and we don't have any context for it, so it's a direct quote. She said, quote, Oh, he's in there, end quote, apparently after seeing a vehicle. We don't know if that was said in joy, in agitation, in fear. We just don't know. But she apparently saw a car that she recognized and knew the owner of. The three of them get out of the car and are going into the King's Inn. Maisie May uh, encounters a girl who she knows by the name of Karen Carpenter, who is exiting the club. This is at approximately midnight. So we're going from July 14th, 1979 to July 15th, 1979. And um, Karen Carpenter, the girl that she encountered in 1984, recalled that Maisie May was her usual self happy-go-lucky, outgoing, wanted Karen to come back inside with them, uh, but she said she had to go. Uh, Karen didn't get any indication that there was anything amiss. So Jay, Maisie, and Bill go inside the club and go to a table on the ground floor. It's a two-story building only. They go to a table. They order their drinks. Uh, this is 1979. You only had to be 18 to drink at the time. So they were all above age uh, before the drinks even uh, even arrive. And this is primarily according to Mr. Cottrell. Maisie May excuses herself from the table, says she's going upstairs to talk to whoever the owner of the car was. Never mentioned a name. She goes upstairs, is gone for a couple of a couple of minutes. The drinks arrive. Jay has a drink. He then tells Mr. Cottrell that he is going upstairs to accompany them. And that's the last time either of them are ever seen. We don't know what happened after that. That's crazy because, you know, like we always say, someone knows something somewhere. That bar on a Saturday night, you know, midsummer, there were people there. And I, it just it baffles me that no one has ever come forward and said anything else about that that it, it's mind-blowing this to me is just mind-blowing you can speculate as to why but we honestly don't know um again i don't know when law enforcement clearly ascertained that they had even gone there again i think it might have been as 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 late as 1984 before the, before they even learned it so they might have been trying to track down witnesses five years after the fact so Bill Cottrell is the last to report seeing these two alive that night. But Jay and Maisie May's families reported them missing fairly quickly, correct? 
That is correct. Jay's family reported him missing. You have to be careful with the dates here because after midnight, it becomes July 15th. Uh, According to the report, they reported him missing on Monday, July 16th. Uh, Maisie May's brother, John, reported her missing the following day, Tuesday, July 17th. But they were reported to completely separate agencies. Jay's parents reported him missing to the Dunbar Police Department. Maisie May's family reported her missing to the Kanawha County Sheriff's Department. I read somewhere that they actually, authorities didn't connect their disappearances until almost six months later. But I guess when you say that, it makes more sense because they weren't reported to the same entities. That is correct. And also keep in mind... Dunbar technically would have no jurisdiction over this whatever. It would either be the Charleston Police Department or the Kanawha County Sheriff's Department at the time who would have any jurisdiction over it. So in reporting it to Dunbar, and here's where there enters in a little bit of criticism, which it turns out is probably justified. They did report him missing to the Dunbar Police Department Monday, July 16th, for whatever reason, no teletype was, uh, for anybody who even knows what a teletype is anymore, I'd better explain that. (laughs) No missing (laughs) persons report. We have some young listeners too. (laughs) (laughs) A teletype uh, then became a fax, which later became an email, which I guess now would be a tweet. Uh, They didn't send out an an official (laughs) missing persons report for nine or 10 days. And Jay's father was keeping on them, I guess you could say, asking why, why, why no report? Well, eventually it did go out. I don't know what the delay was at the Dunbar level, but within the year, the chief of police in Dunbar was let go. And I have had people who have come forward to me since and said, yeah, that was a bad time there. Not going into any detail, but saying... That doesn't surprise me. Well, do you think uh, because, you know, I don't know how how big of a law enforcement agency it is, but I've heard a lot of stories and you read a lot about when people go missing, especially young kids, they say, well, they probably just ran away or they're probably just out partying. I mean, did you run into that? I did. But one key point you have to keep in mind, Jay was not a kid. He was over he was over 18. So this is a, a sad fact, but. It's not against the law to be a missing person if you're over 18. So that might have been a part of it. It might have been apathy. It might have been over overwork. It could have been anything. We just don't know why the delay. But there was a delay, and nothing appeared in the press on Jay until September 7th, when at that point his case was turned over to the Charleston Police Department and there was no connection made with Maisie May until the following Jan- Janu- January when it was turned over to Kanawha County. Starting in January of 1980, there is a very ongoing and thorough investigation, which I have the documentation of right in front of me. So starting January 22nd, 1980, I can trace it step by step. And after that, it was very thorough. But again, or six months after the fact. What all was missed in that time period, I don't know. You're talking about six months there of families pushing to find their loved ones, but 
so much disappears in well, that think, six months. You would think, though, if they went ahead and, and like, you know, Charleston police picked it up, his case, uh, wouldn't you think they would have re-questioned? I mean, I don't know how the different <laughs> law enforcement, you know, entities approach investigation because everybody does it differently. But you would think, oh, they they approached them and said, hey, this woman was missing, too. They were together. They eventually would have connected it sooner, I would have thought. Uh, you would have thought, but it did not get connected until January. And uh, it was in with Kanawha County talking to somebody in the Charleston Police Department that it did finally get connected. The deputy who took over the case in January of 1980, Deputy John uh, John Seymour, um, it doesn't go into excruciating detail about how he did it, but he eventually became aware of the fact that she had gone missing at about the same time. He contacted her family and put two and two together and found out, yes, they had gone out to, together. And from that point, they were tied together. And at that point, the in, the investigation, from what I can see, certainly certainly ramped up. I don't have a lot of documentation to show exactly what, if anything, happened between July of 79 and January of 1980. There could have been a lot going on at the local level that I just can't see, but if there was, there's not a lot of indication of it. And again, her No Missing Persons article about Maisie May appeared until January of 1980. So when they started putting out these, the press releases in January of 1980, what other efforts did they make? Were they actually out there with boots on the ground looking for these kids or were they just press releases to say, hey, be on the lookout? Sorry, these guys have been missing for six months and we're just now bringing it to the public's attention. This is again where you have to be careful. There was not a lot that was telegraphed publicly. The investigation was going on behind the scenes. It was not in the public's eye. But starting on January 20, 22nd, 1980, and I have to be very careful here because there's still a lot of stuff I don't want to go into, but the report that I have from 1984 uh, essentially outlines the investigation on a step-by-step basis starting in January of 1980. And it says that on that day, I'll give you some new stuff here. Deputy Seymour had a conversation with Sergeant Mark Carlson of the Dunbar Police Department referencing the disappearance of Jay Farley. Sergeant Carlson advised that the victim, Jay Farley, was possibly in the company of a female subject by the possible last name of Sigmund or Shamlin from the Sissonville area. And then, boom, he put two and two together from there. He contacted her family the same day, got the information from them, and on January 24th, entered all of the information that he had on them into NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. And then over the course of the next couple of days, January, I see entries here, January 24th, 26th, 27th, 28th, he did quite a bit. says here, uh... Deputy Seymour conducted a check and an entry to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's dead file computer, a national computer for the unidentified dead. January 27th, 
Deputy Seymour went to the office of the Charleston Gazette Mail, at which time a photograph of Maisie Mays Sigmund and an article were uh, submitted and ran in the Sunday paper. January 28th, the underside contacted Agent Paul Paul Ragland of the Secret Service in an effort to verify if the social security number of either had been used since the time they vanished, and it had not. Neither of them had been used. May 25th, 1980, numerous teletype inquiries. Again, if anybody has a question as to just what a teletype is, we can go into that another time. <laughs> teletype, teletype inquiries were sent to several states in the south and western part of the country in an attempt to locate anyone by the name of Palmer or Farley and information on possibly obtaining driver's licenses for either individual in any state or any criminal activity or a check of jail and hospital records. But you go back to the fact that Jay Farley didn't have a driver's license again. So that would have been. That wouldn't have applied to him. That would have been mainly right. connected with her. So just one less way that they could have tracked him at any point because he didn't have a driver's license. Correct. Uh, the deputy then checked the records of the Holly Hotel to see if they had checked in there that not that night they had not uh, a couple of days later the deputy actually located somebody uh, who lived locally who was a dead ringer for Maisie may said that they had actually been uh, mistaken for each other a couple of times so i could go on and on and on here with entries but they continue right up until jay farley's body was found uh in may of 1984 my main point being that there was an uh, extensive investigation done. It just was not made public. And again, you, you talk about that, the fact that they don't want to release all of their information to the public. There's a reason behind that. They, you can't give away too many of the details because, you know, then it almost just becomes people talk rumors. People talk about the things that they've heard not necessarily the fact. So you keep it, you know, close to the people who need to know. But then, so they're tracking from January 1980 until Jay Farley's body is discovered, 1984. Let's go there to where he's discovered the conditions in which his body is discovered and who discovered him. There is some of that that I cannot go into, but I'll go into as much as I can. May 10th, 1984, uh, early in the morning, um, Canelton Hollow in Fayette County, uh, which is just a couple of miles over the Kanawha County, Fayette County border, about 45 minutes west of, uh, east, excuse me, of Charleston, where they were last seen. Uh, that morning on property that was owned by the Mars Sands Coal Corporation, a security guard is expecting a large number of trucks to come on the property that morning, but they're late. Um, he thinks they might have gotten held up at the main gate, so he, he deviates from his normal path and starts heading down through the woods towards the gate when he comes across unidentified remains. Skeletonized 
remains and some clothing. Um, he immediately contacts the sh- uh, the sheriff's department in uh, Fayette County. Fayette County contacts Kanawha County. The message reaches Deputy Seymour. He immediately, he doesn't even have to get in touch with Jay's stepmother. By then, the information has already made the news, and she has she has heard about it. She contacts him. So he finds the, he finds these remains just out in the open? Not in the open, no. This is up a private road. Uh, it is off of Canelton Hollow Road. Uh, the roadway on which it is found, or off of which it is found, is a private road. It is still... V- very remote. Uh, it is a dirt gravel road. The remains are found, uh, it says about 10 to 20 yards off of this side road. And um, I can't go into the exact con- con- condition of which they were found, but I mentioned earlier that the night that Jay disappeared, he was wearing a pink plaid polyester shirt. Well, um, that makes the news that day it is reported that the remains had a pink plaid polyester shirt polyester doesn't deteriorate so it was completely intact uh jay's stepmother hears that over over the news and that is how she is able to contact deputy seymour ahead of him contacting her so um she submits to him a copy of jay's dental records from 1979 and the identification is subsequently confirmed. So what did they find at the scene? Well, um, it had been five years. The remains were completely skeletonized. Uh, They identified him through his dental records uh, and his shirt. They were able to ascertain that he had been shot once. Um, Under the remains, they find a flattened out bullet, and they ascertain that he has been dead probably since the very night he disappeared. And I really can't go into too much more other than that. There is a lot more that is known, but I've been requested by both the family and I've decided myself that there are certain things about the scene that can't be made public. But That's there, understandable. There is much- this is an open case. You know, yeah, it's what? There- you can't. But I can. I can let people know that they do know a lot more than that, but it just can't be telegraphed. So if they are, this is on the premises of a coal company. Was there a lot of security there? Were there gates to get through? Was it an area, since it was remote and belonged on or was on this property, um, would it have been something that you had to have? key access to get into or could someone have gotten there pretty easily on their own accord in 1979 i don't know when i went to the scene just um late last year uh there was a gate immediately off of Candleton hollow road you could not go up the actual road where the remains were found i do not know if the gate was there in 1979 but you could have parked and you could have easily parked and walked. So that wouldn't have been a problem. But the question then comes up, um, I'm really big on charting point A, B, and C. And so this becomes our point C. How did Jay get 
from point B, the King's Inn, to point C in Canelton Hollow. When he didn't have a car and couldn't drive, Maisie May could drive but didn't have a car. Right. That's the question, I think. How did he get there? It was about 45 minutes away. This was a Saturday night, a Sunday morning. There's no bus service. It wouldn't have gone up Canelton Hollow anyway, even if there were even if there were. So how did he get there? And exactly when? We so don't know. obviously someone else, of course, is involved in that. So they discover his body in 1984 in this remote area. Do you know what steps were taken after that? How long they actually were they still actively looking for? Maisie May, once once the discovery of his body happened, what steps were taken after that by law enforcement? I can only follow it very briefly because at that point you come across another, I hate to call it a problem, but it is a very common problem in these cases. Because the case at that point crossed the county line, it was turned over to the state police. This report which i have access to i believe is a report which was made up by deputy seymour for whoever was going to take it over at the state level uh so that summer uh in 1984 the case falls under the jurisdiction of the state police where it currently is now i do not know what steps were taken after the summer of 1984 i know from looking through the report that right up until the case was handed over, Deputy Seymour was still making inquiries on both fronts. He was trying to track track down Maisie May, and he now had a homicide on his case, so he was looking even harder, you know, at trying to track down the killer, but at that point, it was taken out of his hands. And I have not been able to find any indication of anything having been done in the interim. Last year, when I talked, and I cannot remember the name of the trooper who I talked to who currently is in charge of this, but it is under the jurisdiction of the Gully Bridge Detachment of the State Police. And I got in touch with the trooper who is in charge of it. He he had never heard of it. He checked their holdings to see what they had What they have in their files, according to the trooper who I talked to, is essentially the report that I have and a couple of uh, copies of black and white photographs, and that's it, to my understanding. So basically it was turned over to law enforcement and it just unfortunately kind of vanished. We don't know for sure, but I can't find any indication of anything done in the interim, it may have been. I don't want to say definitely that, that nothing was done because I don't know that. Right. But I just, from the fact that I can't find anything in the papers about it, that it was hard to find anybody in law enforcement who even recalled the case. Um, at the very least, I can say I don't think anything new has been learned. So let's talk about possible suspects in your research and what you've read did were there any names brought to light that you can share with us that were questioned or you know the family member came forward and said hey you need to look into this person obviously 
she saw someone in there that night that she recognized that both she and Jay went to speak with. She recognized the vehicle. She was recently divorced. Were any of these leads ever tracked down if there were any at all? Again, I have to be very careful. Um, The name of her ex-husband is going to be public record, so that's no problem. Uh, Her ex-husband's name was Kenneth Wayne Palmer. The report that I have from Deputy Seymour indicates that he tried hard to track him down and as of 1984 had not been successful. There was some indication that he might have been living possibly in Arizona or New New Mexico, I think, and that he for a time may have lived in Ohio and Kentucky, but nothing was ever confirmed. I don't know if he was considered a suspect, but he was a person of interest that they definitely wanted to talk to. But from the information I have, as of 1984, they were unable to locate him. That's the only name I can mention. There were two other individuals who were listed by name as suspects. Again, I can't list their names, but I can say who they were. They were former former roommates of Maisie Mays from about six months prior to her disappearance. They had lived together in Charleston. Uh, they were white males in their late teens, early 20s, and each of them had criminal records. But Deputy Seymour, again, was unable to track either of them down. By 1980, they had vanished. But he had their information. Their names are listed. They are known to law enforcement. I can go so far as to say each of them have outstanding extradition warrants that would bring them back to West Virginia if they are ever found. Or at least they, they did. Uh, the statute might have run out on those by now. Were they violent crimes that they would have been? No. Okay. No, nonviolent. They are drug-related and small. No indication at all that um, Maisie May herself was involved in anything criminal. She had no criminal record at all. She was described by all of her friends as being friendly, happy-go-lucky, outgoing, if possibly naive. One person who I talked to after the story came out said the best way to describe her would be a free spirit. However, the report does note that she did have acquaintances and friends who were known to law enforcement. And the connections indicate that her acquaintances may have been involved in drugs, uh, specifically cocaine. That's big money. That's big money, and that was known to have been going on in Charleston at that time through the 1980s. Um, If you've seen one of my other stories, you know that in 1987 or 1988, uh, Charleston's mayor went to jail on a cocaine conviction. I vaguely remember that, yes. A lot of the same names crop up in the same places. So, yeah, it was not an unknown problem at the time. That's interesting. But again, no indication that she herself was ever involved in any of that, but that she might have had acquaintances who were. Also, uh, what I was able to ascertain, uh, the individual who owned the car to which she commented, oh, he's in there. They don't know who that is for sure, but the the individual is, is not listed as being either of her two 
former roommates. So it's a third party. So that leaves three pretty open suspects there. The ex-husband, these two former roommates. It's One, one thing you have to be careful with, and this is, I want to, again, I want to be very cautious about offending anybody, but... Maisie May is still classified as a missing person. There has actually been some indication since my story came out that she could be alive still. That was my next question. Yeah. I was I was contacted by a person when the preview first posted for the story. I don't want to go into many details about who the person is, but he at one point was in law enforcement, has access to information, and... Curiously, for what whatever reason, Maisie May's name was taken out of NCIC in 1999, and we don't know why. This person who contacted me thought at one point that he may have had information of her being alive as late as 2016. Now, I since gotten him in touch with the trooper who was in charge and unfortunately it turns out the information he had was old but we still don't know or at least the last time i talked with the trooper in charge we still don't know why her name was taken out of ncic in 1999 the catch-22 here is if she's alive that's fantastic but she then immediately becomes a suspect right is there any type of statute of limitations on these, on murder? No. Or on a missing persons case, could that have been a reason that they took her name out of NCIC? Or is it, I'm not familiar with that, if their name is placed there, do they basically remain there until something is discovered? This I honestly don't know for certain, but the individuals with whom I have talked indicate that it is unusual since it is in connection with a known homicide. That's all they could say. I don't know if she has ever been conf uh, legally declared dead. I don't see any indication of it. So that also makes me wonder. Again, it's a, it's a difficult thing to talk about because the people who are missing, we all want them to come home alive. But you have to wonder if she is alive, why? Right. Or or I mean you you come across cler clerical errors all the time where it could have been a unidentified person's DNA was you know they messed it with somebody else's and they could have been like oh well that's that person and and I mean very just... possible very possible we don't again we just don't know there was some indication that she may have been alive as recently as Three years ago again it turns out the inform the information was probably outdated. So we're back to the point where we don't know, but we still don't know why her name was taken out of the database. That's interesting, to say the least, and that's as far as I'll go with it, is it's interesting. Right. It could be as simple as a clerical error, or there could be something where the, um, the right hand just didn't know what the left hand was doing again. It's possible. Right. So obviously, this case come, came to you because Jay Farley's classmates reached out to you That's they correct. so family and friends are still actively involved in these cases since you began your research last year have you stayed in touch with jay's family have you spoken with Maisie's family do they know about her 
being removed from NCIC? Do they are they still actively involved in searching for answers in this case? They were still actively involved. Unfortunately, the timing when I started to actually prepare for the feature was bad. I got in touch with her family and they were going to help me with the case. Unfortunately, just a couple of days after I got in touch with them, they had another death in the family and they were not able to to participate a great deal. They confirmed some information for me enough for me to go to go ahead with the case. By that point, I already had the inform the information from the newspapers, the the report, and at that point, their direct participation was not essential. They provided me with a couple of photographs of her that had never been made public. Um, but again, the timing of it was bad, and it was right before Christmas. And I talked with them the last time, and they told me that it's just it's just not a good time right now for us to go in depth into it. And it sounds like I pretty much have everything that they would have been able to offer anyway. I don't know if they know about the other rumors because I, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever talked about those. It's the first time I'm going into it because it was not until just. It wasn't very long ago that I got back in touch with the trooper who was in charge of it, and he was able to confirm that the the information provided by the informant was probably outdated. So I didn't have conclusive information on that until just recently anyway. Well, I kind of I want to ask you like a two part question here. And the Mm -hmm. first part is being like, I don't know if if doing these cases as many as you've done, like, do you become emotionally invested in it to where you have a theory of yourself that you want to give. And I mean, I guess, you know, I asked the first part of the question anyway, like what, what does it feel like to be, you know, involved in these? Do you actually become very emotionally invested in it to where you're like, I have to walk away from this because it's too, it's too much. You can't. And I'll give a very good reason why my main inspiration for starting this channel was another youtuber her name is kaylee elise perhaps you've seen her channel i've uh, i've mentioned her a couple of times in the descriptions to my cases that happened to her she got too emotionally involved in the cases that she was portraying and it had a very negative impact on her and she had to walk away from it no i cannot become emotionally involved in it. I, I'm not law enforcement by any stretch of the imagination, but I try to approach it in, in that light. Strictly the facts. Um, don't invest yourself in it emotionally or it will overtake you. And if that happens, I can't do anybody any good if it overtakes me. So no, but there has to be some part of you. That's like you, you speaking directly with the families and you know, like, do you, I mean, you you have to feel. I, I, I you would feel empathy. Yeah, I know you what you're trying to say. You would feel empathy yeah. for this family, but I also understand, Sean, what you're saying is that you cannot let yourself get mm-hmm. too emotionally attached because then you start to form your own opinions. Exactly. And then empathy, that empathy takes over too. As, empathy is about as far as as I would go because, unfortunately, when dealing with material like this, you really have to have emotions like ice. 
Otherwise, you're not going to do anybody any good. And you make another very good point. Uh, you would be very tempted to not approach the case in an unbiased manner. But and that is the, extremely important. And that's right. the other part of it. Does it does having that like do you are you able to form your own opinion of what exactly happened in that case? And have you ever, you know, got it to the point where you you're almost right? Uh, naturally, I come up with opinions on all of the cases, but I never express them. Never. Uh, the only time that I ever even express anything that is a th- that is a theory is if it has already been expressed publicly or has been communicated to me by law enforcement or family. Then it's fair game. I don't telegraph my own theories. Nope. Sean, we've talked about some of the key players from the original investigation. Bill Cottrell, who dropped mm-hmm. them off at the bar. Uh, Sergeant Carlson, Deputy Seymour. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had the chance to speak with any of those gentlemen? Are they still alive? Do they have memories of, you know, this case being covered? Have you ever spoken with any of them in that fashion, if possible? None of them. There was one person who I did have the opportunity to talk to only via text, and it was the individual who drove Jay to the club that night. His name is Kevin Withrow. His name appeared in the uh, in the reports in the paper, so it's okay to to mention his name. He couldn't shed any light on it other than what he had already told, and that was he dropped Jay off at the club that night at ten. Uh, he saw him going out of the club at about eleven. He saw him cross the street to the parking lot behind the Holly Hotel. And he, in the report, actually said he doesn't remember a whole heck of a lot from that night, but he adds, I hate to inject any kind of humor into this, but he adds he was probably loaded at the time, so he can't be sure. Right. Well, and that's, Saturday you know, night. I mean, what do you? Right. What else it's, can you say? That's as it, that's as honest as you can get. Right. Summer Saturday night. You're talking about teenagers. Mm-hmm. You're dropping them off at a bar. That's, you know, it, we've all been to college. We've all, <laughs> we've all had those evenings, maybe. So, I this case is baffling. I I don't even really know. We've covered all the main points that we can possibly cover. What are you working on currently with this case? You've you've talked about some points that you don't want to bring to the public eye just yet. I completely understand and respect that. So are you still actively working with law enforcement? Where does this stand right now? Not actively, but once the communication is 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 open, it always stays open. Um, I haven't communicated with anybody on this case for a couple of months now. I try to cover the one case that I do, do a little follow-up with it, and then divert my attention to to the next one. And that's part of not becoming emotionally invested in it. And also because there are so many other cases out there that are going to need my attention that I can't stay on any one of them for a great length of time because there's always an, there's always another one on the shelf that has to be taken care of. So at right. this particular point, I've already started, boy, since I did this episode, this was episode 13 of the, of just the regular series. 
Uh, I'm up now, I think, to episode 24 of the cases that are only inside of uh, West Virginia. So I've had, oh boy, 10, 12 of them go under the bridge since then. It's sad to think that all of these cases are just sitting on a shelf somewhere. Now, you think sad, and then things happen like they did over the, over the summer with me, when there is a break in one of the cases, a big break. And then I start to think, you know, it really is worth it. And that's what keeps you going. That's what, you know, when you get up every day and you start reaching out to these people, that's why you do it, is because just that one break could be something that turns a case wide open. Even Precise. even even cases that have been yeah you know, like shelved and you bringing it back to the spotlight it brings it back to media brings it back to people's thoughts and then bam. When mm. we covered the Samantha Burns murder, we did I think five episodes on that, and I remember when people began reaching out to us, we got some mixed reviews. Some people were very open and said we appreciate the fact that you're bringing this case back to the forefront. We don't want Sam's story to be forgotten. But then we had other people who came forward and said, you know, there are two men on death row who have confessed to murdering her. Why bring it back up? Do you ever get opposition to any of these cases that you are covering? Basically people who just want to let sleeping dogs lie, I guess. Not in that sense, no. But I do have criteria that I set, I set down before I will even accept a case to profile. And unfortunately, Miss Burns's case has been mentioned to me quite a few times. And because of what you mentioned, that there has al al already been a conviction or two in that case, that would immediately disqualify it. Right. Yeah, I know. I know you're not going to like that answer, but no, um, I think. Well, I have, yeah, that's a strict rule of mine that I don't play Monday morning quarterback with law enforcement. Uh, right. They tend not to like that. <laughs> right. And it's understood. And, and like you said, it's when there's already a conviction there, it's I don't want to say beating a dead horse, but at the same time, it, it's. Like you said, there's there's been a conviction, and so you kind of have to move on to the ones that there has been no justice set forth. Precisely. I've been also requested, I know, umpteen times to profile the case of the WVU co-ed murders, and I constantly have to say, no, I'm sorry, that is not technically an unsolved mystery, to use the old phrase. There has been an arrest, a prosecution, and a conviction. I mean, that's what that's what justice is. Right. Now, if law enforcement ever opens it up and says, we think there might have been somebody, somebody else involved, that's different. But as it is now, there are so many other cases that don't have any resolution at all that to go back over ground that's already been covered and closed, think is a little counterproductive in some cases. At least it's not something that I want to undertake. It is. So in summary of Jay Farley and Maisie May's case, if anyone listening would have any information that they would want to come forward and lend either to you or to law enforcement, how could they reach you with that information? There are several ways they can go about it. Uh, the best way to reach me 
directly is either through Mysterious WV's Facebook page or through my direct my direct email, mysterioswv at gmail.com. Or any case in the state, you can submit a tip to Crime Stoppers of West Virginia. All of the all of the tips there are totally anonymous, and they will accept tips from just about any case. Uh, in this case, in particular, uh, the agency that has the jurisdiction over it is the Gully Bridge Detachment of the West Virginia State Police. I would not recommend trying to contact that detachment directly because there is almost never anybody there. Uh, call the state police headquarters in Charleston in this matter. Excellent. And if any of our listeners would have a case that they would like to submit to you directly to review, um, can you give us your social media links? How can they do that as well? By all means, the best way, again, to reach me is through the Facebook page. That's why I get um, many suggestions on there. And that is the best way uh, to come to me with a case. And if there's anybody out there listening who has a case that they would like for me to cover and they're personally involved in it, um, the best possible possible thing that you can do is gather together all of the information that you personally have ahead of time. The more that you can get me up front, the faster I can that I can move. And I always give preference uh, to case suggestions from people who are individually involved, from family and friends. Those always go to the to the front of the queue. Sean McCracken, it's been an absolute uh, honor to talk with you, and you are welcome back to Serial Spirits for any of your future cases. We have a really. Um, I, we feel like it's our responsibility to put cases out there as well. And so the more people we can reach, the better. And I think Mysterious WV is a fantastic site for doing that. You are a great resource. And if you have any more cases that you would like to share with us on future shows, please do so because this is very important work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And always remember and this is a quote that I got from a case early on that still holds true. The police may be the long arm of the law, but we are their eyes and ears. That's yeah, that's a, that's an important, that's an incredible statement. And like <laughs> Annie said, like I 100% agree, you are doing incredible work. I think it's important to keep these cases in the forefront, in the forefront of people's minds, keep light on them and not let them get buried on some shelf somewhere where we just say, Hey, you know, it's, it's not solved. Let's just leave it alone. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Before we stop recording, anybody have anything else they want to add to anything? There was a curious incident that occurred with this case. I don't know if you would like it or not, but it might. Um, it's something that really st struck me. I don't sure. know if you could use it or not, but I'll tell you. Whenever I do a case that involves a homicide. One of the things that I try to obtain visually is a photograph or video of their gravesite, kind of as a nice way to tie it up with a bow. In this particular case, I was in contact with Jay's family, and um, his father has died since, and he was buried, of course, in 1984. And uh, I talked with his family, and they told me where they were each buried, and 
right off the bat, I was taken aback. They said uh, they're buried in Cunningham Memorial Park in St. Albans. And I says to them, oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. I lived beside that for 10 years, right beside it. So that's easy. Okay, I'll know where to find them. They described to me where each of them were buried. And when I found the the gravesite of Jay Farley, I <laughs> my jaw literally dropped because I was on a small little hillside in direct line of sight with what was for 10 years my bedroom window less than 200 feet away from where he is buried i looked out over the site every day for nine years from 1984 to 1983 i was only 200 feet away and that i stood there for quite a few minutes trying to take that in that um i didn't want to say that it was creepy i tried to view it as this is a positive sign but right. it was definitely, definitely an eerie feeling to think, my gosh, for nine years, I looked right out over this site and I never knew it. He's literally been in your line of sight for the last nine years. And then this was, case fell into your lap. That's some type line. of, yeah, yeah that's some type of kismet of right there. From 1984 to 1993, my bedroom window looked right on it, right on it. I'm one, I'm one of them people that really don't believe in coincidences all the time. So that, you know, that when I, I didn't know what to make of it, but it is what it is. And it's certainly, I was taken aback. Well, Sean, thank you so much. This it's been, I hate to say that it, it's, it's been great talking with you about this case. It's, it's great talking with you. And like Shay and I said, we appreciate this work that you do so much. And if you have another case that you would like to talk with us about, please don't hesitate to message either one of us because this is the kind of stuff that we love to cover. Uh, several of the cases that I have dealt with where I've had direct contact with the family and with the law enforcement, I would think those would be of most uh, of probably of most interest. Absolutely. So if, you know, when you have time and, and it kind of falls into your lap again, if there's, when you get the, the show notes together or whatever, just let us know and, and we can record any time. And, and Annie's also got a live show. She does every week uh, on every Tuesday on a, a platforms, paranormal warehouse. So it's a, it's a video show, like, right. it's, you know, face to face video show, but yeah, anytime, man. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for having me. I sure appreciate it. So guys, that was an awesome, awesome interview that Weebs and I did. And uh, I mean, what can you say? I mean, there was some facts that he threw in there that weren't on his, his uh, YouTube series. So if you want more, and I know you do, Go check out Mysterious WV on YouTube. You heard all all Sean's uh, contact information. Go check him out. Follow him. Give him some love. And check out all these amazing cases he's done. Not only is the work that he does as far as the research and really digging deep into some of these cases, but the production that he brings to this show is top-notch as well. So go to, go to YouTube. Check out Mysterious WV. 
That's going to do it for us, guys, this week. Make sure you go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, because it does help. And I want to give a huge shout-out to History Goes Bump, because they gave us an amazing, amazing review. That's History Goes Bump podcast. We had the opportunity of meeting them a couple weeks ago with Hillbilly Horror Stories and Brohio Podcast in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So go check her page out. Give her some love. Leave her a five-star review. And guys, until next time, stay creepy. Once again, thank you for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out weekly on Paranormal Warehouse at ParanormalWarehouse.com on iTunes at Serial Spirits, and on SoundCloud. Please rate and review the show. Follow us on all your social media apps. Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits, and on Instagram. Until next time, be aware and be safe.